Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, so today we have probably one of the most qualified, certified, and dare I say bona fide PFD guru feeding matters volunteer that I have been blessed to meet. Because today I have the pleasure of introducing, wait for it, Bianca Rowe, an OTD, OTRL, RDN, LDN, and CLC, because you got to get the boobs in there at the end. She is a tiny powerhouse, triple, just kidding, it's like quadruple, quintillion, I'm not quite sure, threat of complete and total delight. And here's the backstory of how we met. So this past, was it the tail end of March or the beginning of April that Feeding Matters had their conference? And her and I, we both volunteer for Feeding Matters. We were assigned the same lecture. So she was doing the Q&A and fielding all of that. And I was there as like a chat box support to kind of like expand upon. Is that a word? I think that's the word. I teach people to swallow, not to talk. Thank the Lord. And answer any questions and remind people to like use their hashtags, like hashtag call it PFD. And anywho, we swapped phone numbers. 
so that we could text each other for like tech support. And one thing led to another. I come to find out that this woman on the other end, who I thought was just a dietitian, is, wait for it, an RD and an OT. And I don't know about y'all, but I finished up my master's degree in speech pathology and was like, ooh, I really should have been an RD. Or, ooh, I really should go back to school and be an OT because they like, they know all the things. But this woman actually did that, <laughs> which is so inspirational. So we we stayed in touch because Instagram is delightful and her and her company have a absolutely cheerful, functional Instagram page. And I asked her to come on and she said yes. And then put up with me having multiple life crises, like family members passing away and then having to travel and was gracious enough to reschedule. And here we are. So Ah, Bianca, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so grateful for you. So hi. (laughs) Hi, Michelle. I am delighted to be here. Yay. You're so freaking smart. I mean, you have literally basically half the alphabet behind your last name. So well played, lady. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a product of um, I'm one of those people who starts like a million Pinterest projects. And I think that just carried over into my professional life where I'm like, I love this and I love this. Can I do this too? And here we are. See, I have a million Pinterest boards, but it all pertains to gardening and house projects. And my husband does not appreciate them because I think we pretty much keep Lowe's um, in business down the street from us. Yeah, We did switch to Home Depot. (laughs) 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 Oh, oh my goodness. Okay. All right. So I'm just kind of curious. When did you start volunteering for Feeding Matters? Yeah. So I started volunteering with them around when I started OT school because I was leaving Tucson and going to school in Phoenix where Feeding Matters is based. And I was really excited to be in the same city as them. And so before I even had my apartment set up for grad school, I scheduled a talk with them and I went to their office and met there. And I was like, I'm so into feeding. Like, I'm so excited. Like, can I volunteer, please? And so that was back in 2017. And I've just kind of been volunteering with them ever since. That's amazing. Okay, folks, in case you didn't know it, we love them because it's because of them that we have the PFD consensus paper as well as the brand new ICD-10 PFD acute and chronic codes. So if you don't follow them or volunteer for them, please do. You can find them on Instagram at Feeding Matters, their Facebook page, and the CEO, Jacqueline Peterson. I know she's been on podcasts all over God's green earth, including here with us at First Bite, but she is just they're doing great things. All right. So then let's go from the beginning with you. You started out as a registered dietitian. So let's start there with what made you want to be an RD and then kind of segue into how that differentiates between an RD and a nutritionist. Cause I know that is easily confused. Yes, definitely. So a little bit about me is I had a childhood cancer. And oh, my stars. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm very blessed to be here today. And so one of the things that kind of stuck with me throughout the years as I healed and recovered and thrived is neck pain from a surgery that I had. And I really found food and nutrition to be a way to help with that. I didn't go into dietetics or nutrition specifically for health, but because I had developed this love of food, it was something that has been nurtured and nourished throughout my adult life. And so for me, it was like an opportunity to study food, like, oh yes, please, of course, give me that. And I really loved doing all things food, learning about what was in it, learning how to cook it. We had food science courses. And so it was something that was perfect for me because food is my world. And for those of you who don't know, the difference between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist is in the education. So a nutritionist is not a regulated label. So anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. It can be someone who's passionate about food, 
or someone who's attended a weekend seminar, but there's really no specific requirement that you've fulfilled any level of training or education in order to use that term. But a dietitian has completed a four-year accredited program to get their bachelor's in nutrition and dietetics. And then they've gone on to compete for a clinical, or it doesn't have to be clinical, but compete for entrance into a dietetic internship which are pretty competitive. They're about a year long. I completed a clinical one and it was in that final portion of my dietetic internship that I had the opportunity to meet Marcia Dunkline and be introduced to PFD, which is really that first place that got me into feeding. And so once you complete your dietetic internship, you are eligible to sit for the national board exam, which is how we get our registration or the credential RD or RDN that some people use. Your mentors are goals. So can we just say like to have completed an internship with Marsha Dunkline, I think I would still be a puddle of goo somewhere on the floor. I'm just imagining like the boy slime, like the homemade slime and just being there like, ah. Yeah. And I was totally, I like didn't even know who she was at that point because I was still a student. Mm -hmm. I was completing my dietetic internship and I had been hooked up with her for a day. And she is, if you, anyone who's met her, she just oozes passion and joy and love. And so I got to meet her at Mealtime Connections and she sat me around this round table that had this beautiful, colorful tablecloth in this airy, bright room. And it was just a place of happiness. And she sat me down and was like, do you know what pediatric feeding disorders are or feeding therapy? And I was like, uh, no, but I want to know. <laughs> And she, yeah, what better person to learn what that is, though, than from Marsha. And I got to spend the day in the clinic and seeing what feeding therapy looks like. And I was sold. I was like, this is for me. I don't know how to do this, what this is, but I love it. I love this population. And it turned into work experience for me. Once I finished my internship and got my RD, I started working at Marsha's feeding clinic, Mealtime Connections with the other incredible clinicians there. And I split my time between that and a nonprofit outpatient medical home that had both clinical and therapy offered there. And what an amazing experience all of that was. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's a practicum site I'd like my grad students to uncover. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how my stars aligned, but I figured I have to do something good with all of this excellent experience that I just had kind of plop in my lap. Okay. So then talk to me about, please explain how an RD helps with children with pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. And I'm just kind of curious, did you actually encounter an RD when you were going through childhood cancer or I don't want to pry if that's a a hurt. I mean, no, I think that's a very fair question. So I was four when I was being treated. I had a chordoma, which was very rare. A chordoma is most commonly seen in middle-aged men. And as a four-year-old female, I was certainly not that. What is this word? A chordoma? A chordoma. So it is a tumor that grows on your spinal cord or near your spinal cord. And so thankfully, my tumor was very slow growing. So it was actually pushing against my spinal cord and I was temporarily a quadriplegic. So I couldn't move from the neck down. And my poor mother, I try to give her so much credit as her only child. She went through so much stress during this time. And I try, like over the years, I've tried to piece back some of the memories I have and I must have had a dietitian because I wasn't taking anything by mouth for a really long time. And I had nutrition through what my mom refers to as a Broviac, which I think is into my bloodline. But actually, my most memorable experiences are being played with. Even though I couldn't move my arms, I remember these two therapists coming in and bringing toys and holding my hands around the toys and having me do pretend play. And I realized OTs. Yeah, for OTs. Yeah. And like, what an incredible thing to have made that connection once I was already in school that they are the reason I was able to play as a four-year-old laying in bed, paralyzed. Um, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, honey. I hope somebody out there, I would love it. If Have you ever met them? I don't. I remember 
It was most often a male and female pair, and the male had long, dark hair. It was often in a ponytail, and I just remember they were so much fun, and I always looked forward to them coming to play with me. But what destiny for me to now be in this profession, one that gave me joy in that moment of a lot of worry and stress in our family's life. Oh, sweetheart. Yes. Okay. See, big plans were laid out for you. Yes. (laughs) That's what I try and think. Yes. All right. So if Broviac, yes, you you probably most definitely had a registered dietitian then. So then this is the piece that I run into in our little world. We have like one registered dietitian at our children's hospital in the city that I live in. And there's a lot of individuals that call themselves nutritionist, or I can't remember the similar word that's akin to a nutritionist, but like holistic food practitioner or whatever. I'm paraphrasing that. But when I was first coming along, I didn't know that there was a difference within those fields. But as I got older and did more research, I realized that only a registered dietitian is allowed to give medical food advice that's like billed to insurance. Can you explain what that looks like? Yeah. So we call that medical nutrition therapy. And what that means is if you are giving someone nutrition advice that pertains to any kind of medical condition, then you need to be trained and have the education to do so. So if you are giving someone advice who has diabetes to help them with management or high blood pressure or with growth for little ones, if you're trying to, we have a little one with failure to thrive and we're trying to give parents a plan to help with growth, that is all covered under medical nutrition therapy and cannot, that is protected and that cannot be done by someone who does not have the appropriate credentials. Mm-hmm. What happens if they try to? I is think- that like, is there- There's not like a body that is constantly looking, but if you are someone who is doing that and you get reported or get caught, then you would be subject to legal. I'm not sure if it would be from our professional organization or from our certifying agency that certifies us as as RDs, but they have it within their ethics that it's protected. And so you would be um, subjected to legal action from them. Excellent. So there is professional recourse for patient safety. Yes. That's that beautiful. Okay. All right. So then how did you work as an RD in the world of PFD? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So I was really blessed that after meeting Marcia, her clinic Mealtime Connections was looking to have their first staff dietitian. And so because it was just starting, it wasn't a full-time caseload. So that's why I split my time there and at another local nonprofit clinic. So it looked a bit different at each place. So at Mealtime Connections, I saw a lot of those, that typical PFD population where we were looking at potential food allergies or undiagnosed food allergies or sensitivities. We were looking at growth. We were looking at home blended tube feeds or general tube feed management. And then at the other medical clinic, I saw a lot of more complex medical cases where we had kids with neuromuscular disorders, cerebral palsy, osteogenesis imperfecta, a whole wide range of of different things. And so we worked on different teams or um, for individual consults, a lot of the time managing growth and managing tube feeds and tube feed tolerance. What we saw a lot of, which is very common also in the PFD population, is just this poor tolerance to these tube feedings, which how can we then improve feeding if we're feeling yucky all the time and we're throwing up our tube feedings all the time because it's being pumped into us too quickly or it's not a formula that our bellies tolerate. So a lot of that was spent problem solving and trying to get these little kiddos comfortable and growing. Okay. I have 14 questions for just that statement right there. When you said their little tummies won't tolerate it. Why? Okay. Rar. Focus, Michelle. Okay. So first thought, I have so many children that I see that are just pumped full of, and I'm not going to use their name, synthetic fake formulas where sucrose is the first product followed by corn or, oh, you want to shake it up notch and like make it a fiber one. And then corn's first and then sucrose sugary crap is second. But 
their pediatricians just pump them full of this stuff. And then I come in the picture and I'm like, but they're not pooping. And they have to take like Miralax. And then I'm like, what about like functional formularies? What about real food blends? What about Kate Farms? And they like with real food. And then all of a sudden we switch them over and then you see them doing, why? Why do people put them on the sugar foods first? Help me understand because I stay so angry about it. And I shouldn't be angry that like, I stay angry about a lot of things, but I'm working on improving that. (laughs) Sorry. You can completely relate. I, yes, it is. The why is, is a big question. And I started doing this before, like at the very beginning of real food blends coming out. And when I was practicing, we didn't have Kate Farms yet. And so I think it's an easy solution for medical providers because you can count it. It is so exact, right? It's developed in this lab. You know how many calories are in every little tiny teaspoon. And so when we're worried about growth, we love that we can count the calories and they're not so much thinking about the ingredients label, especially when these big brand formulas will talk about how these really broken down ones, these elemental formulas, they're like, there's no way a child will react to it because it's elemental. They're like the proteins are all removed and broken down. And so I think some doctors feel safe in that because it's considered, you know, it's it's a medical food. It feels like medication. So it feels like we can trust what is being said about this. But I know from practice and from seeing parents and talking with them and seeing the kids tolerate it, that there are kids that are still reacting to these elemental formulas. And I don't know why. I've had countless time spent on phones with these companies trying to figure out like, is there some intact protein? Like, is there corn present? But the answer is always, Oh no, they definitely can't react. I'm like, okay, well, they're reacting to something. And but so they I, are. Yeah, but they are. So I really loved when we were able to transition to home blended tube feeds or with supervision, or now we have so many wonderful options that include real food, like the Kate Farms and real food blends and just all the different, even that if you wanted that kind of in between commercial formula, but still has real food that complete by Nestle mm-hmm. has like peas and I don't know if you've ever tried them. They just taste like bland soup. I've tried all these formulas to make sure that they're palatable. Yes. Yeah. It's, I think that's yes. important. Oh my goodness. Melissa Blanford with Real Food Blend. She comes to Skisha every year. Melissa, I love you. Hi. And every year. She comes, she like, we try the formulas and like the very first time, like we're sitting around, I mean, oh my gosh, we were at like a fancy seafood restaurant a couple years ago. Um, two years ago this February, we went out for karaoke afterwards. Can, that was just, I mean, these are the things that happen at speech pathology conventions. I'm assuming the same happens at RD and at OT conventions, Uh but anywho, we're sitting there and we just got done with like our fancy meal and our dessert was tasting the formula like the g2 blends but i was and actually this was it was a total god moment we're sitting there passing this formula around and our waitress i kid you not our waitress comes up and she goes is it okay if i try that and we're like sure so like you know we scoot this is pre-covid days folks so like we scoop her out some out of the bag that i mean like everybody had a clean spoon for every attempt right so like we scoop her out some and it turns out that she had a loved one that had a feeding tube and had been stuck on the sucrose stuff and she goes oh my gosh this smells so much better than what we're giving you know their person but how cool was that but y'all these babies even if they're in po they're still tasting the formulas. They're still tasting what goes into their body. Just like you yourself, you finish eating a meal, but then you lay down or you have acid reflux and it comes back up. You know that slightly digested flavor, right? Yep. The same thing happens for our pediatric. Yes. And so we have to remember that what goes in will come out one whole or the other, and they have to have a positive experience with us. Yes. So I also have this other working theory. It's because the larger companies can just ship free product to the doctor's offices to have it sitting on the shelves. Yeah. It's easy to have those free samples sitting there. I kind of think of it too, like when canned foods first came out in America, right? And we were just so excited about this way to offer food. Yeah, but then I- everybody died from tin poisoning, but like, <laughs> sorry. Yes, right? Like, we just get so excited about like a, a thing that is so controlled and like kind of, I don't know, it seems 
like new age. Yeah, it's all easy. Everything can be counted. And we're just really excited about that. And maybe that's not what's the best thing, especially for these little tummies that are so sensitive that we can give them real food in a way that's been pureed and fits through their tube and makes their tummies feel better. And it settles. It doesn't always come up. I definitely am obviously biased towards that method. Mm. If y'all haven't read it, 12 molecules that changed the course of history, I would it's also known as Napoleon's 10 buttons, but they actually go through the molecule 10 and then talk about how there was a um, Arctic or Antarctic expedition, but everybody died from 10 poisoning or they would have actually survived and been like the first to discover like the North or South Pole. I don't remember which pole it was, but I just remember thinking like, wow, they were so excited for that new product, just like you said, but then it killed them. <laughs> so like random, random factoids. Okay. so. The role of the registered dietitian when they're on the PFD team, can you talk to us about their scope of practice? Yeah. So typically we are brought onto the team whenever there's a tube feed going on or if growth is an issue or we just have a really narrow diet and we're concerned about maybe not getting all of our micronutrients. So micronutrients are basically our vitamins and minerals, which can happen if we're have such a selective diet that we don't have enough variety that's covering that whole spectrum that we need. And so on that team, our job is to look at what intake currently is and compare it to what the child's needs are. So we'll do a full workup based on the child's weight and height to make sure that we are as closely aligned as possible and that we're at least meeting the minimum number of calories we need for maintenance or growth, maintenance of our growth curve. So we'll also be monitoring and tracking those growth curves to make sure that we are growing consistently wherever we've established. And so what we typically run into with PFD is that we're little and we're low on the growth chart. And that's okay. Some kids will be low on the growth chart. That's normal. We're going to have small humans. I'm a small human. But we want to make sure I'm I'm not meant to be on the 50th percentile for height because I'm just not going to ever be there. But as long (laughs) as whatever we've established, we continue growing along that percentile that we've established on. That's our goal Mm -hmm. is to make sure that we're meeting the needs so that we continue to have growth and development. And then if we're not finding ways that fit with the family and that fit with that are accepted by the child that are tolerated by the child to help them if they're kind of falling behind. A lot of numbers. (laughs) You're more than a calculator, baby. You're more than a calculator. Okay. So here's how that translates to the SLPs Monday through Friday. You have a child on your caseload and they are, let's give scenario number one. I have a little boy on my caseload who is not bringing anything into mouth, periods of irritability throughout the day, typically about halfway between a tube feed and the start of the next tube feed and severe constipation. The formula that kid was on was sugar-induced first, and he was crashing throughout the day. He was five and a half at the time. So I said to the pediatrician, hey, can we consult with an RD and consider changing the formula? I you know, specifically requested a food-based, plant-based formula, and they ended up switching over to a Kate Farms for that child in particular. And his entire temperament changed. That registered dietitian, Donna MUSC, I am incredibly grateful for because this kid went from having severe irritation and it was sugar crashing. I mean, if your diet's full of sugar, you're going to crash afterwards. It's kind of like, I don't know, akin to me having a caffeine crash. I'm not a happy person, (laughs) but like then I have the next cup of black coffee or maybe spice it up with pumpkin spice. But she made the change. And all of a sudden he was also interested and even attempting oral trials of his formula, which was the coolest freaking thing because we had a kid who was 100% NPO with YouTube dependency. Yes. And he so enjoyed the new formula. Oh, by the way, all Miralax and mineral oil and enemas stopped because he no longer needed those. And huge progress. All right. Case number two for why we need an RD on your team. If you have a child that has a self-limiting diet, and I have a new child on my caseload who, and I've had 
an eval and two treatment sessions with this child. And oh, by the way, the pediatrician's office changed in the process. Mom went from one provider to another provider all in the span of three weeks. We're just starting the process, but his primary form of nourishment at four is whole milk with green bean stage one purees mixed in four to five times a day. And it's just that. And then he will lick the surface of a pizza. Bianca, this baby is the tiniest little guy I've ever seen. We've had to change practitioners. We've had to go to all the places, but I need to know what high calorie, high quality metabolic caloric alternatives are available to this child that I should focus on food chaining next to, right? Because I don't know the answer to that. If mom's already putting pureed stage one greens into his whole milk just to keep him functioning, like what are my options, you know? And I don't know that. Should we recommend lima beans or peas or or avocados? And I don't know the range. I don't know. I just know he's willing to accept slightly green milk, but I don't, nor should I know the answer to the next step. That's what an RD does. And that's why we collaborate with them and why they're absolutely, absolutely an integral team member. So, okay. So those are my two case studies for that. Is there anything, we have so much more grounds to cover. Is there anything else for the RD that you want to address or clear the air or just celebrate? Yeah. I mean, I feel like RDs get this perception that they're going to judge parents or are only about eating healthy, but our job is really about nourishment and making sure a child is getting what they need to grow. And so we will work within whatever our confounds, confines are, whether it's a child being self-selective, whether it's a family's personal ways that they want to eat or socioeconomic restraints. And so I just highly encourage people to talk with the dietitians in their area. You can even shop around just like any clinician. You can find ones that are best suited to a family but we are totally here to help and can be very valuable members on these teams. Yes. And if you don't have an RD on your child, on the patient's team that you're working with, then, and they have a diagnosis of PFD also, how cool is it we can finally say they have a diagnosis of PFD? <laughs> yeah. So like, whoop, whoop. That's, that's not old. I don't think that will ever be old, but huzzah. But if you don't have an RD on your team, and the child has a diagnosis of PFD, then find one. If you have a child that has a feeding tube or alternate means of nourishment, and you are unsure if the pediatrician or the GI are leading the calls on that formula, they're not registered dietitians. They don't have that specialty training. So even if the nourishment is being managed, I would still seek out the consultation. Okay. All right. So one day you realized after being an RD for X period of time, and I want to know how long the X period of time was, that you wanted to go back to school and be an OT. So how did that transpire? Yes. So I loved what I did as an RD. I wasn't specifically trying to leave the profession, but I fell in love watching the OTs and speech therapists around me. I was on um, a feeding team at the, at the nonprofit outpatient clinic. And then I was involved at Mealtime Connections, which is just very heavily, a lot of their practices for PFD. And it was so magical to be in this room, watching the development and watching the progress and watching the joy on parents' faces. And I was a part of it, but very distantly, you know, I'm over here with my notepad running numbers and calculating volumes and determining rates and checking um, calorie requirements. And I wasn't part of that process. And it's something that I just really longed for. I had FOMO, you could say, (laughs) I wanted to be part of that food and developing that relationship with food for that little. And so I decided after about three years, that that's it. I need to be able to do it. And I was teetering between speech therapy and OT because as you do, they're both incredible professions. And I partnered with both of them and I was in love with all of my speeches and all of my OTs, but I opted for OT. Um, 
And I've never looked back. I'm now able to do both. I do traditional OT. I do regular nutrition consults. And then I marry the two for my feeding kiddos. And I'm living my dream job. Okay, so can you do both? Like, do you have to have a script for RD services and OT? Like, how does that... Because you have so many different hats. That's cool. But like, which hat do you wear and do you have to have a script? What are the technical details there? This has been a learning journey (laughs) because it's very unique, right? This isn't something that's been established before. And what ends up happening is when we have a client who has feeding needs... I do a phone screening with the parents to really get more information on whether it is a true feeding case that needs feeding therapy, whether it's nutrition education that the family is needing or both. And so I'll spend anywhere from five minutes to, I probably spent a little over a half hour on some of the more intricate cases, talking with the parents and kind of getting that initial background information to know how long has this been going on? What are you hoping to get out of this? What have your concerns been? What what has the doctor communicated with you? And then if it's just nutrition education, we will check their benefits just like with anything else um, and then get the script for nutrition. And then if it's feeding and it's like, oh, you know, I don't think me telling you that we need to add more veggies is going to do anything because our picky eater is going to say no and we need to do feeding therapy, then we get a script for OT feeding therapy. But if it is both, if growth is a concern, we suspect underlying food allergies, we want to do that initial nutrition evaluation to see how close we are to meeting our needs, but then we're going to have ongoing feeding needs, then we'll get a script for both nutrition and feeding and we'll do separate evaluations for those. You're making me want to go back to school. <laughs> I, know it's I cannot add it's so one more thing. I have so much fun. <laughs> I'm like, there's, I can literally not do one more thing right now without going. Yeah. But, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, presently I'm behind on laundry and I know for a fact that upstairs on our bed is like three loads that needs to be like divided and. I mean, we're not fancy. We don't fold the laundry when we take it out of the dryer. We put it in the hamper, dump it on the bed. And then I like toss it into four piles, mommy, daddy, and the boys. And then they're independent men. They're responsible for folding and putting their own laundry away. Do they do it great? No, but it gets done. And I think until we master doing that at an expedited rate, I should not consider going back to school. (laughs) But you're teasing me, Bianca. (laughs) Okay. So now your OT program, you were mentored by Dr. K. Toomey during your postdoc or how did that work? Yeah. Again, we can thank Feeding Matters for being an awesome connection because um, I knew, so my program was an occupational therapy doctorate program, which means it has an additional portion that is considered our It used to be called the doctoral residency, and it's now more commonly referred to as the capstone. So during that capstone portion, our program allows us to self-develop whatever we want, and we kind of write it up based on certain standards, and we develop a plan for it, and then we just we do it. We get to shoot for the stars. And that was something that drew me to my program because I knew I wanted, I was specifically going into this for, to become a feeding therapist. And so I wanted my capstone to provide that additional training for me to be able to start the ground running as a feeding therapist. And so before, about a year before my capstone was coming up, um, I was volunteering at the pediatric feeding symposium and I was a moderator for Dr. Toomey. And so after her talk, I went to talk with her and let her know kind of my background and what I was hoping to do and whether she'd be on board for helping guide me during my capstone process. And she is the sweetest human and probably one of the best mentors I've ever had. She was very person focused. So she almost had my goals and my wants better prioritized than I did because I was dreaming these big dreams, right? And she would have to sit me down and be like, okay, Bianca, but how realistic is this? Like, I get what you want to do, but I don't want you to go crazy. So is this realistic for you? And she would bring me down to earth a little bit while still making sure I was getting what I wanted out of my time. So incredible. 
And so basically once my capstone time was coming to start, because she's so busy educating the world on feeding and SOS, we had to split my capstone time between a clinical mentor that I decided to do here in Chicago because my husband started medical school in Chicago during this time. And then I did. Wait, your husband's also a doctor? Casually. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> He's still a student. He's still a student. But one day I've been trying to like push pediatric specialties on him. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Uh, you know what? South Carolina really needs another air digestive tract um, specialist ENT. So like, may, may if you're going to encourage, can we please encourage that? Just I mean, you know yeah. how, how much we need a really good GI. Like, can you please? But anyway, yes. <laughs> I digress. So I got to do clinical work. And then I did half of my time doing remote work with Dr. Toomey, which was beautiful because the pandemic hit. And so I was already in a position to continue my work with her where I had to get a little bit more creative on the clinical side. And so her and I developed these videos that were meant to be interdisciplinary ways to train clinicians on interventions for feeding and different play ideas. While, and then another one that was meant to talk about the role of the dietitian on the team and the scope of practice and how to involve each other. And so professional education as a whole for speech, OT, and RD is something I'm very passionate about and really excited by and hoping to continue with. But yeah, it was such a fun time being able to be mentored by her and have her talk me through ways to communicate and ways to edit my writing and kind of my mission. My She was very inspiring. She helped me kind of see my potential as a clinician having both of these hats on the way that I can bring the team together. Yes. Okay. Folks, I've said it, I don't know how many times, but I keep circling back to it. There is power in finding a mentor that will fill your cup when you're in the room and you're with them. But finding a mentor that will sponsor you, that when you walk out the door and another person enters, they say, wow, did you just see her? That woman, she has the weight of the world on her shoulders and you would never know it. She goes at this with zest and then praises you and talks about you in the most kind and positive way. That when you are seeking mentorship, when you are seeking someone to shape and guide you on the next step of your professional career, regardless of however old you are. I'm even talking to you, my fellow gray-haired women that are rocking um, middle-aged wrinkles and cellulite. You too, we all hit that point where we want to grow. So make sure that you find the sponsor because they're rare, but they're there. Yes. Oh, Beautifully you found really, really good ones. Yes. Well, yeah. Because I've, I've had mentors that wanted to use some of my skills and then have hurt me deep. And one of my dear friends gave me other advice and bless her. She's right. And that's, that's hard. That's hard to relearn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry you went through that. And I'm always sorry when other people go through that. And I think as students, mm -hmm. especially when we're, we're building any rotation for ourselves, we get excited about mm -hmm. a school or a specific area of practice and we're not as much paying attention to the mentor. And I believe, like you do, I'm the exact opposite, that choose the mentor because you can be successful in any setting if you have the right mentorship. Yes. Yes. It's scary, though. Is it not? Can we just admit that, like, when you're trying to do something new, like, the entire process can feel overwhelming and terrifying? But, like, y'all. Mm-mm-mm. Okay. So talk to us about, because we still have one more data point to get to, but talk to us about your favorite parts of the OT on the pediatric feeding. Okay. Also, ladies and gents in the room, an OT can treat dysphagia. An OT can work on dysphagia and they are absolutely 1000% within their scope of practice to do so. So if you are not used to having an OT on the team and you're feeling very territorial, take that feeling and punt it. 
think football season is still going on. Punt is a term. Field goals go team. I'm not the sports person, Bianca. So like, we're just like faking it. (laughs) But we need them. And they're supposed to be there and it is within their scope of practice. So just to clarify and set the stage for that. Okay. So what are your favorite aspects of the OT for PFD? I just wanted to start by saying, if you are an OT and you're interested in learning more about these more specialized areas of feeding, there is a new community of practice through AOTA that we meet monthly. And so we just had a great meeting talking about dysphagia and talking about regulating language within policy to help make it more clear what's within the OT scope. But definitely look up F-E-S-C-O-P and A-O-T-A. Google those together and you should find our group. But yes, I... What I love about OT is that it's it's broad and you can kind of find the niche that interests you most. So within the OT practice, I think some of the things that also set us apart from speech is how much education we get on looking at sensory and sensory processing and recognizing any of those things that may be labeled as behavior recognizing that as a form of communication, that that is that child communicating something to us, right? So if they are wiggly, if they can't stay in their chair, if they're averting their eyes, if they are pushing things away, if they're now throwing food, what are they telling us through their body about what meal times or what foods are doing to them or how they're feeling around them? And so that has been such an incredible piece that I've learned through my OT education that I didn't really have a great awareness or understanding of before and that I really enjoy talking with parents about. There have been so many cases where we've greatly improved what mealtime looks like just by addressing that sensory component, learning to listen to our child and removing pressure, right? So any opportunity we can take to not be pressuring our child at the table and making that relationship a calm, pleasant experience does wonders. So, so much fun. (laughs) I just lovingly refer to y'all as the gatekeepers of awesomeness. So the way you say it sounds a lot more poetic. (laughs) But honestly, for me, I get the kiddos that are completely stressed out and their anxiety is running high and I'm asking them to do something that is overwhelming. And if they're dysregulated at baseline, then how can I ever ask them to try an advanced task out of their comfort zone? I cannot move them up the zone of proximal learning if their house is built on sand. And so that's where I love working with the occupational therapist. And it's hard because we don't have an OT on staff at the university clinic. We are in the process of building an OT program and that should roll out in the next couple of years. But until then, it means that I have more legwork behind the scenes to reach out and collaborate with the home health practitioner or the other private practice practitioners. There's one lady in particular, um, Irene Ingram. She works over in Hartsville. She's the coolest clinic I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh my gosh. It's like you open the door and there's swings and nuts hanging down from the ceiling. And it is just the most, the entire building carries therapeutic presence. Like there's not a misuse of space anywhere. And it's really, really cool. But being able to work with her, I can pick up the phone and just say, Hey, I have this going on. This is what I'm seeing. And she's like, all right, well, in therapy this week, we worked on this this index. Did you try this for carryover? And I'm like, brilliant. So for one guy in particular, whenever we have a challenge food, we are pedaling on a tricycle and I call myself Shell for the kids. I'm like, all right, Shell's going to get on her bike. So there was Shell this past week on her tricycle in a dress because I did not plan on actually like the kid came in really ramped up because they had had some diagnostic imagery done the day before. And you know, that buildup of activities. They weren't anticipating x-rays. They weren't anticipating blood labs drawn. So it was like one thing leading to another thing, leading to another thing. And then we needed um, partnering. So Shell was on a tricycle in a dress 
thank goodness I had Tom's on. So there I am pedaling in a dress on a kid's size tricycle. And I was like, I'm too old. And then the mom got down after because parent caregiver coaching mom got on the trike and she too was doing it. Also shout out to the grad students that were riding the bike as well. But, <laughs> but you know what? I wouldn't have known about that regulation calming technique to get gross motor input in had an OT not talked to me about it. Yes. Yeah. I feel like proprioceptive input is our secret weapon <laughs> for yes. everything. And it's, I yes. love to, when we can empower speech therapists to use it because it's not just like dysphagia. It's not just for us. It's something that everyone should be know, know about. And so I love to share it with other speech therapists as ways to help them be more productive in their sessions because kids are dysregulated all the time, not just in certain areas or with us. So everyone should be educating these parents, other therapists, teachers. Mm-hmm. 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 Pediatricians. We yeah. need to do a call for papers for the American Academy of Pediatricians and do an in-service on our roles and responsibilities. <gasps> That's what we should get Feeding Matters to do. Oh, this is a, I like this idea. <laughs> I do too. Okay. Developed. There's going to be a series of emails tomorrow morning at three o'clock when I can't sleep. So just like roll time, Bianca. <laughs> Huzzah. Okay. For interprofessional practice, that's key. Folks, if you have not heard it before, please go back. Dr. Marion Russell, OTRL. She's with No Tube either notube.com or notube.net. One person, one website sells you car tires. The other website is a feeding tube dependency clinic. So like (laughs) you'll know when you get there, but she leads the feeding tube dependency clinic that's in America. That's based off of the Austrian, not Australian, but Austrian feeding tube dependency clinic. And they're like one of the best in the world. And she's created the, or is leading the American extension of that. And their entire approach is all points of communication get run through the team and the caregiver and every single interprofessional practice partner is on copy for every single communication. That is living, eating, breathing, current evidence-based practice. That is interprofessional practice like set to the highest standard. And I'm aware of that. I'm also aware that my own capabilities fall incredibly short from that because I don't even have a HIPAA compliant email server for ease of access, right? So I right out the gate have that barrier professionally. And I use that so that everybody knows we all have our own barriers, right? But it is still my responsibility to engage in interprofessional practice for my patients that have a pediatric feeding disorder. So I have to get creative and make phone calls and, and fax records and FaceTime and Zoom and, you know, FaceTime when it's HIPAA compliant, but like Zoom and those things. But why do you feel that it's important to engage in interprofessional practice? And then do you, what are your quick strategies for success? So we all have our different lenses. And it is just so incredibly important to have these different eyes looking at a child and trying to problem solve when we have these really big barriers in their life that are preventing them from being able to engage in play and learning the way that their peers might be able to. And so rather than have these segmented clinicians who are looking with their eyes, but maybe not communicating and problem solving with other clinicians and like kind of progressing up this stair of ideas. Kind of like if you think of a brainstorming session and you can brainstorm by yourself, but if you're brainstorming with another person, your ideas can grow and grow and grow because you're jumping off of each other. And I think that same thing happens with care. I might have an idea, but then someone else might be able to tell me like why that idea may not be fitting, but might be more similar to this idea. And then we can keep going. And when we're not in communication, that process either takes forever, it takes so long, and the child and the family are both waiting for this entire time and not progressing, or it just doesn't happen and it just fizzles and dies. So it is so important to try within your means to have those 
branches out to your other members of the team, whether it's going to be via email, like NoTube, or whether it's having an occasional Zoom meeting with the whole team doing like a care conference, which I've done a few times, and is, I think, more accessible now, like since COVID started, people are more comfortable doing that kind of thing. Or just picking up the telephone and saying, oh, you know, maybe it's time I had a conversation with the pediatrician, and we talk about where we currently are and where our goals are and making sure we're all on the same page. So I am a huge proponent of a team-based approach. We, Just like you said, we know it's evidence-based. There are plenty of papers out there who talk about outcomes being better when we have a team-based approach for children with pediatric feeding disorders. And right now, I think the hardest part is that we are all on different systems. We all have different ways of communicating. And so it right now is kind of on each individual clinician to be participating in that process. Do you have your favorite story for where you saw it work? That's That's like a a really personal question. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. Let's see. So I feel like when I was just an RD, (laughs) when I was only an RD. When you were just an RD. You were, honey, you were never just anything. (laughs) When that was my primary role, I remembered we had a family who had recently moved into Tucson. And so they were reestablishing care, right? So that was already really difficult because a lot of these clinicians were new to them and they were working through some issues that had been longstanding. And so they were going to these different appointments through different agencies in Tucson. And I think I had seen them twice. And I was like, you know what, I just need to have a phone conversation. And what ended up happening is that, as you can imagine, families are being told a million different things by a million different people. It's so hard to relay this when they go between specialists, that by me just picking up the phone and having a back and forth conversation directly with the pediatrician, we were able to come to a consensus about where to start and what our plan should be and make changes within that same week. Versus I had already seen them twice, so two months had elapsed, and we were just kind of going back and forth trying to decide what to do, and I was trying to understand what, what the pediatrician was saying and you know when we were going to meet with GI. But by me picking up that phone, I was able to get an actionable plan and get approval from the pediatrician to start with a formula change and monitor that and then do X, Y, and Z after that same week with that family. And so that was a really great example of how it is not just beneficial for you as a clinician to be able to communicate and communicate your value on the team, but most importantly, for that child to begin to get the work done to make them feel better and to get them where we want them. You had a very good pediatrician on the other end of the phone. Oh, that's true. That wasn't any of them. <laughs> I, mean, I wanted to skip out on the horror stories. So. No. That was a great I'm thinking, <laughs> Yes, because for every great pediatrician I've collaborated with, I've collaborated with some where I'm like, ooh, where was yes. my on of communication? Yes. Wait, there's a new book. Folks, there's a new book by Malcolm Gladwell, and it's called Talking to Strangers, and it was finally released because I had like, you know, mine like saved for the pre-order, but it's all about breakdown and conversations. And honestly, it is working its way up there ever so closely behind crucial conversations for me for like recognizing like implicit, explicit bias and with respect to like breakdown in conversations and how we can reassess it's so if you haven't purchased it go purchase it i found mine at the target for 20 percent off even though i had on the amazon wish list but like hip hip hooray i'll take the 20 okay with the very last 30 seconds do you have anything else that you want to fill us in on excuse me or like yeah final thoughts i would just say if you are in the area of pediatric feeding disorders or wanting to get into this area of practice, don't just attend education opportunities within your field, but look at the education opportunities that are within your partners as well. Look for things that are being given by RDs. Look for things that are being given by speech or OT, depending on who you are, because they have wonderful things too. And it helps you just broaden what you're aware of and what you know about. Certainly like they still have their scope and you have your scope, but it's so useful 
to better understand them, but also your area of practice and have a little bit more knowledge that kind of spans outward. And so that's definitely something I encourage people to do. On that note, Dysphagia Research Society, a lot of our patients that ultimately obtain the diagnosis of PFD also have an underlying dysphagia, whether that be oral or a pharyngeal pharyngeal or esophageal that led them to a dual diagnosis. But Dysphagia Research Society, this coming March 2022, they have one, um, it's virtual and or being held in Puerto Rico. I would recommend taking a peek at their conference. Also, if you have a child that's in need of a transition for formula and say you are the RD and yet you can't get the formula to them quick enough, there's a uh, nonprofit called Dysphagia Outreach Project, which I would highly recommend if you haven't checked them out there on Instagram as well as Facebook, but Dysphagia Outreach Project, reach out to them because these vendors ship them supplies for free. They make donations and DOP's one mission is putting the supplies in the hands of the caregivers for free, which is amazing. All right. Bianca, my goodness gracious. Think I could have talked for another hour. This went by so freaking quickly. Um, we'll have to do a part two. Oh, let's do a case study. Can we do a part two and just have like case studies? Yes. I love that idea. That would be super fun. Excellent. Okay. All right. So folks, we'll come back for part two for case studies. If folks want to hear from you and learn more from you, how do they reach you? Where can they go to follow you? Yes. So as Michelle mentioned earlier, I have a feeding Instagram through our company that I love. We do nutrition advice and tips, feeding tips, picky eater stuff. And it's where you can find information on our workshops as they come up. I have a workshop coming up in November for feeding birth to one. So that is at Clubhouse Feeding. So on Instagram, it's at Clubhouse Feeding. And then if you want to email me, if you don't have a dietitian in your area, you have questions, you can always email me. I love questions and having an opportunity to explain things. So that's Bianca, or what is that? I'm forgetting my email all of a sudden. I'm Bianca at Clubhouse Therapy. There it is. <laughs> So B as in boy, I-A-N-C-A at clubhousetherapy.com. And then if you want, I get this question all the time, like how do I find an RD in my area? So if you go to eatright.org, that is our national website, and you can look up people who have the credential, the RDN credential in your specific area. So that's a great tool if you are new to an area or you just are unfamiliar with what RDs are practicing. It should also tell you their specialty. So then you can specifically look for an RD who practices in pediatrics. Everybody out there, as always, we greatly appreciate you. We are ever so quickly coming up on the ASHA 2021 convention. Be sure to come visit me at the Speech Therapy PD booth. Bring a copy of Chasing the Swallow. I will gladly sign that for you and geek out and probably ask you to take a selfie. And then be sure to attend Friday's lecture at 11 a.m. where I'll be co-presenting with Dr. Veva Barwal with Savories talking about true transitional foods for evaluation treatment of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. And then as always, we love it when you follow us on First Bite Podcast, on Instagram, on Facebook, or Chasing the Swallow on Instagram. And we love it when you leave reviews for Chasing the Swallow on Amazon or First Bite on Apple Podcast. Yes, I got through all the plugs. Huzzah! We did the thing. We did it. We survived. Most excellent. Well, Bianca, thank you very much. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. 
change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures... All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah. I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye.